in a very fitting 2020 way, this week should have been the end of the minor league baseball regular season. I am sitting in a state that uh, half the state has been under wildfire advisories and the other half under snow and uh, freeze advisories, a winter storm watch. I got snow at my house yesterday on September 8th. And uh, there's no minor league baseball to talk about this week. It just all, it all plays in perfectly. It's 2020, man. It's, uh, isn't it great for everybody? Aren't you? Yeah. I mean, I, we can, we'll talk about this more later, but in this sort of what if land, imagine if let's say the Rocky mountain vibes had made the pioneer league postseason. Yeah. We have a snow delay in, in the playoffs. Weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, it's great. It's very normal. Everything's very normal and cool. Or I guess anywhere in the Pioneer League, really, right? Isn't it snowing yeah, pretty much. just all over the Rocky Mountains? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it's been a very uh, regular early September, obviously. And it's supposed to be back to like 89 degrees by next week. Everything's real normal. Do you think the snow will stick or no? Uh, we didn't even really get that much. We were supposed to get three to six inches of snow, and uh, we got like a dusting. Like it barely stuck to the grass. I mean, it's been a billion degrees. It was 94 degrees two days ago and then dropped 50-some degrees that night. Like it's, you know, it's, it's summertime still. The The ground is too warm. There's There wasn't going to be much that stuck. But, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, the playoffs would have been able to go on rather quickly. But, man, it would have been a miserable game if anybody had to play last night. But uh, they didn't because 2020. It's all great. Yeah. <laughs> so we're kicking you off on a on an upbeat note on this week's episode of the show before the show from milb.com the official podcast of minor league baseball my name is tyler mon sam dykstra is in new york city and uh we got a, a lot to get to on this week's episode of the show and we will start with some news uh from our world the world of minor league baseball in a release uh that was sent out Yesterday, we're recording this on uh, the 9th of September, uh, and this, the headline from St. Petersburg, Florida, after 38 years of professional baseball and 28 years with the minor league baseball office, minor league baseball president and CEO Pat O'Connor today announced that he will retire on December 31st, 2020. Pat O'Connor has been uh, with minor league baseball since 1993. He was the chief operating officer uh, then and was named vice president of administration following the 95 season. Uh, he was named the 11th president in minor league baseball history in December of 2007 and uh, was actually just reelected to that post in 2019. But obviously there is a, a new chapter coming in the relationship between major league baseball and minor league baseball, as we uh, are all very aware. And uh, Pat O'Connor announcing his retirement after 38 years in professional baseball. Uh, Sam, your thoughts on this news, which broke yesterday? Yeah, I mean, this is what it comes down to at its very base level is just, this is a changing time for minor league baseball. We've all known that if anybody's following the news lately, you know that the PBA uh, is up this fall. Um, There's been a lot of negotiations, both through the media and behind closed doors where we don't know what's happening. Uh, We don't know everything that's coming out and we don't know what's gonna, what it's gonna look like here on the other side. Um, but Pat O'Connor, you know, not stepping down, but he's, he's announced his retirement, like Tyler said, and, um, you know, stepping away from the mill side at the end of this year on December 31st um, is just another piece of that. It's another sign that things are going to be very different whenever we get to the 2021 season. Uh, you look at Pat O'Connor's tenure and, and what he's done for minor league baseball and how much bigger 
it is in the sports landscape now than it was uh, you know, when he started. Uh, I, I'm not going to put that entirely on him. I think the industry has, has driven a lot itself, and I think fan interest has drummed up a lot. But um, just looking at one man's career and seeing you know, what minor league baseball was at the beginning, which was kind of a niche thing, and where it is now in which – this show exists, for example. And again, I'm not giving Pat O'Connor for, for this show, but the fact that there's enough interest in minor league baseball for you guys to tune in every week and still check in on, on what the goings on of MILB are uh, says something about, about the state of our sport and the state of this industry specifically. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, one interesting note to me that you all can look into however you want is that Part of the announcement wasn't that there's a natural successor uh, involved uh, right yet. It, let's see what minor league baseball is going to look like. Um, you know, there's been some talk about MLB taking over operations of, of minor league baseball, but would there be somebody under that MLB umbrella who would essentially be a minor league commissioner? Uh, we don't know that yet. They might not even know yet, that yet as they hammer things out. Um, would Rob Manfred kind of take over that as well? Uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And um, obviously lots of benefits and lots of downsides uh, to potential changes in minor league baseball, but uh, Pat O'Connor leaving is kind of an end of its own era. We talked to, we're going to talk to Ben about this briefly, but he tweeted that out yesterday and we were talking to him about it off mic. Um, just saying end of an era encapsulates so much about this. It's, it's the end of the Pat O'Connor era in minor league baseball. Um, and it, it's the end of an era in minor league baseball itself in some ways. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll wait for the details and break it all down when we know exactly what it's going to look like on the other side. But um, one other, you know, shoe to drop here is, is this Pat O'Connor news. Yeah, and obviously, you know, there is uh, so much going on in the world of minor league baseball and will be going on uh, as the professional baseball agreement uh, expires on September 30th, which is the, the governing agreement between Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball. Um, we would love to discuss what we know, but there is so much that we don't know. Uh, and I think that's, you know, just kind of in a circumstance like this where there are negotiations and there are things that are going on a lot of that happens behind the scenes. And so we don't know uh, a lot of the mechanics moving behind the, the closed doors of those negotiations right now. So it's not that we are uh, keeping you shut out. We are uh, eagerly awaiting that news, as are a lot of people. And um, it is the end of an era. But it's, you know, to be honest, and I'll just say this from stuff that I have read, um, I think there are a lot of potentially really exciting elements that are coming uh, or could potentially be coming down the track for 2021 and beyond. Um, but we'll, we'll await the official news on all those things. So it's kind of tough because 2020 has been a year that has just been fraught with uncertainty in everything in life. And so this is another thing that we, you know, don't have right now a lot of uh, definitive information on, but that's kind of the way we've all existed in 2020 uh, in every facet of our daily existence. So um, we obviously will be with you here throughout uh, all of the developments over the next few weeks and, uh, and into the baseball off season and beyond. And, uh, but that is the, the biggest news from MILB uh, as of this week. Um, this week would have been the start of the minor league baseball postseason. And instead, uh, it's an exciting time for prospects in a, a lot of places who have been promoted and have made their major league debuts. I think there have been like 177 players to make their big league debuts so far this year. Uh, but Sam, this is ordinarily such an exciting week for us because we dive into the minor league playoffs. We don't have that this year, which is a bummer. Yeah, Monday 
uh, I, I tweeted about this, you know, over the weekend. Monday was supposed to be the the official end of the minor league season for so many teams. Labor Day was on Monday. Uh, teams like to go out with a bang, have everybody get to the park uh, on on that last day of the season. Um, we don't get that this year. There are so many ways that that is a celebration, not only for us as a site, but just across the sport. Uh, ben wrote this story last week about guys who play all nine positions in a game. That's the thing we always look for in the last week. Um, sometimes there's fun pitching matchups. Sometimes there's uh, things like every player in the, the lineup uses the same bat. Um, just those little quirks that when you have so much baseball going on and for it all to stop on one day like that. And there are some things I, I talked before about the Pioneer League postseason happening right now. I think I got that a little bit wrong. I think the Pioneer League regular season extends beyond Monday. But anyway, uh, when there's just so much about minor league baseball that just stops on one day, and we've had that basically every day uh, since the minor league season was canceled, uh, it's, it's impossible not to miss it. And it's impossible not to miss the playoffs. The playoffs are a big deal. I know they don't seem like it on the outside of, you know, you're playing for a, let's say, Midwest League title. What does that really mean? But for these guys who, some of whom have been with that team since April, when you are told to be at the park every day to improve yourself and play for the team, and at the end of the road is a league title, that means something. That's a big deal. And some of these clubs uh, that have been really well homegrown have done that because they've formed winning teams at the minor leagues. I, I think of the Kansas City Royals last decade. Yeah. They had a real base of prospects who all came up and were winning lots of, you know, division titles, league titles together as a group. So when they made the majors, they knew what that was. That was winning was not new to them uh, collectively. It wasn't just slamming a bunch of players together and say, Oh, you guys figured out you're all talented. They had done that as a group. Uh, the San Diego Padres last year, double A Amarillo won a, a league title and they trade a lot of guys from that team. But at the same time, they were putting in the pieces in place for a winning culture. And now, you know, we're seeing some of that benefit now. Uh, they've done that at other levels as well. Uh, but for, for a guy like Mackenzie Gore, who's still in the organization, or Luis Patino, to go through that Amarillo team, win a league title, know what that feels like. The Padres are trying to build a World Series winner. To do that first in the Texas League and then maybe potentially bring that to the major leagues, that stuff does matter. Uh, so, yeah, it's the end of the road. It, and that's what I'm going to miss this year is so many times we get the cliche quote from players and being like, what are you looking forward to the rest of the year? It's like, Oh, well, we want to, we want a championship. We want the ring. Uh, and we just, part of us wants to roll our eyes and be like, okay, kid, like we know you, you want to make the majors, whatever you're trying to say the right thing, but this is their day job. This is their life for the summer. Uh, this is the, what they work towards all year round. Uh, so wherever you are, you want to win a league title. And that's, we get to crown so many league championships. That's the great thing about the minor leagues is that it's so expansive and there's so many different league champions. And then in triple a, the IL winner goes up against PCL winner in the triple a national championship almost feels like baseball or at least minor league baseball's version of the super bowl. One game. That's all you get. Uh, usually in a third location. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure. Well, no, Anyways, it's, it's usually in a third location, um, so there's not really home field advantage. Uh, it's just a great way to celebrate minor league baseball. It gets put on national television. We don't get that this year either. So it's another thing we, we're kind of robbed of, but it is fun to look back on what the playoffs are, what they mean to these guys, and, and gives us another 
thing to look forward to, to 2021 because we're definitely not going to take these three-game series, five-game series here and there across all the various leagues for granted uh, come this time next year. That is certainly true. And uh, final point of our open for this week's episode of the show. Today is Roberto Clemente Day across Major League Baseball as the Pittsburgh Pirates will all don Clemente's number 21. Uh, Players of Puerto Rican descent, players born in Puerto Rico uh, are also, uh, they have that option to wear number 21 today. And uh, Roberto Clemente, a Hall of Famer uh, as a ball player and uh, also one of the greatest humanitarians that baseball has ever seen. It's cool to see uh, the sport and the, the Pirates move for this has been uh, out there in the public for a little while that they would all wear 21 today. But it's neat that Major League Baseball is embracing this with Roberto Clemente's legacy. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'll, I'll add my, my voice on, on top of that. I think 21 should be retired across baseball. Yeah. Um, you know, the, we know what type of player Roberto Clemente was. 3,000 hits obviously stands out. If you get a chance to see his arm from right field, it was incredible. Uh, you know, the potential five-tool guy, uh, really the standard for outfielders from his era. And knowing what we know of him about a humanitarian and, and you know, the way he died trying to deliver goods, uh, you know, down to the Caribbean and, and tragically dying in the plane crash, um, you know, it's, this is a guy who is a hero to so many people in this game, not just Puerto Rican players, um, but, you know, Latino players from all over, from anywhere in the Caribbean, from places in South America. And really, he should be the standard for any player, regardless of where you come from. To, to be that type of player on the field, like I said, 3,000 hits, and to be the type of humanitarian he was off of it, that's the type of standard we should all be uplifting and you hear guys from Puerto Rico talk about him I know Francisco Lindor um, you know went on and on about him just this week and uh, you know the Molina brothers are from Puerto Rico Carlos Correa is from Puerto Rico Javier Baez there's a really strong influence at especially at the major league level right now uh, for Puerto Ricans and knowing that they have almost this guy who's basically a baseball saint to look up to and set that standard is huge um you know, Jackie Robinson's 42 is, is one of those eternal numbers. I would love to see Roberto Clemente's numbers join that as well, um, just so we can give him a space and, and remember him every year. Let's not let this be a this year thing where it's only the Pirates and only Puerto Rican players. Let's all celebrate him together, um, make sure his number is retired. And, and so, you know, when kids of any stripe uh, from anywhere go to a major league park and they look at the retired numbers and they see – you know, they're local clubs players, they see 42 and they ask about 21. Who does that stand for? Uh, they ask their parents and the, their parents can give them that story. And that becomes, a, Roberto Clemente becomes a hero to that kid as well. That's huge. And those are the stories we should be telling about our game. So um, excited for what, what's happening today, like you mentioned, uh, with the Pirates and with Puerto Rican players. We'd love to see that expanded in the future. But um, never a bad time to look back on Roberto Clemente's legacy and, and what he means to the game of baseball. And a guy who was so proud of his heritage and who he was early on in his career, uh, media members and largely, of course, white media members tried to call him Bobby Clemente. They tried to make that uh, his name. And he stood up and said, no, my name is Roberto. My name is Roberto Clemente. And that's what I want to be called. And uh, to be able to do that in that era and make sure that you're putting your stamp on your own legacy uh, and not letting anyone write that for you is pretty incredible. And yeah, a guy who's, you know, like you said, trying to deliver uh, goods to earthquake victims and is killed in a plane crash. Uh, he knew 
so much of his life was bigger than just baseball, and yet he was one of the greatest baseball players of all time and uh, a pretty incredible man and uh, a very neat day today for honoring him in Major League Baseball. And uh, across the minor leagues, obviously there are a lot of teams that have done that as well. I know the Hartford Yard Goats have number 21 retired, but uh, Roberto Clemente, a guy who, if you don't know a lot about him, pick up a, a book. There's a, a great biography about him, and uh, you can find a lot today. And obviously you'll be hearing this later on in the week, but there will be a lot out there about uh, Roberto Clemente and go do your, your own reading and research because he is a, a fascinating baseball life. And with that, we'll wrap up our intro on this week's episode of the show before the show. A lot coming up today, and uh, we'll, we'll try to get you up to speed on what life would have been like in the 2020 postseason and such. But we'll also look back at what some teams have done uh, this year to try to capture the feel of a season in which there was no season. Benjamin Hill will join us later. Josh Jackson will join us later as this week's episode continues on the show before the show. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Joining us on this week's Minor League Baseball podcast, the show before the show, is AA Amarillo manager in the Padres system, Philip Wellman. Uh, Philip, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much for joining us. And a big reason we wanted to bring you on the show this week, actually two big reasons, but one of the biggest reasons is right now would be the start of the minor league postseason. Uh, we would be talking about previewing, you know, postseasons across the country, coast to coast, AAA all the way down to the rookie levels. You went through a postseason last year with AA Amarillo. You guys won a Texas League title in the first year of the Sod Poodle's existence. Um, one year on from that, uh, what are your memories of that postseason run, and, and what did you take away from last year and, and that group? Well, you know, it was, it was great. It was an exciting time, and you know, it was kind of a fairy tale story. We we moved from San Antonio into Amarillo, and um, you know, to get in the playoffs was was outstanding. And um, and I don't know if you remember, but the first round against Midland, we were down uh, no zero games to two, and we won three in a row in Midland. And, got to the championship round and uh you know it was, it was a hard fought battle we were down three to one going into the ninth inning in Tulsa and uh came back and won that game so it, it couldn't have played out any better and uh you know you're right I I thought on Labor Day I said well this is our last would have been our last scheduled regular scheduled game and one of two things would have been happening the day after Labor Day. We'd either been getting ready for the playoffs or we'd have been packing up, getting ready to come home. But uh, unfortunately, we've been home for the past five or six months. Right. Yeah. And 
Um, what is the importance of a postseason run like that? I mean, you know, for for the casual baseball fan, they're all focused on the major leagues, and it's all about producing, you know, minor leaguers, turning them into major leaguers to make postseason runs there. But these playoffs exist for a reason, and it's to reward these guys for a hard summer of work. As a manager, what does a, a title run mean like that for you personally and just for these players as they're getting their careers going? Well, I, th- I think it means a lot more to the players, and not that it doesn't mean anything to to the managers and coaches, but I think it's an instrumental part of the process uh, of getting a guy ready to play in the big leagues. I, I think once you get to the playoffs, all all your senses are heightened. Uh, there's a, a greater sense of urgency. Uh, um, all the things you preach about during the year kind of come to fruition. You know, every pitch matters. Every at bat matters. Um, it, it, I think it gives them valuable experience. For what they're gonna what they're gonna be faced with when they get to the big leagues, you know I know you know the the Padres made a, a, a plethora of trades here last week, and I looked at uh, somebody put it on Twitter the other day. Our Game Five lineup um, in Tulsa, six of the eight position players that were in the lineup have been traded, and uh, you know I can't help but to think that that you know their performance in the playoffs and and uh, and just being in the playoffs gave them a little little greater experience in the, than just playing 140 games. And and they have a little better idea of what to expect when they get to the big league. Yeah, that that was the second big thing I wanted to talk to you about. We we might as well bring it up now since you brought it up there. Um, you know, looking back at that lineup, Taylor Trammell, Edward Olivares, Owen Miller, Luis Torrance, Hudson Potts, Buddy Reed are all in, in separate organizations now. Uh a big reason for that is the Padres are contenders because of their homegrown talent and what they've done the last couple of years. But another part of that, like you said, is is other clubs wanting these players. How do you view that, knowing that so many guys you helped develop and coach last year have moved on? You know, I, I think it's, it, uh, it exemplifies our, our scouting department, our pro scouting department. You know, some of those guys we got in trades, um, some of them were homegrown, but and, and I think it bodes well for the player development staff, you know, uh, all the way down to, to rookie ball because a lot of those guys, you know, Andres Munoz and, and the likes started out with us in rookie ball and um, developed very nicely before they ever got to double A. And, and hopefully we finished them off a little bit and, and helped them uh, realize some things that they needed to do to be successful in the big leagues. And, and lo and behold, now, you know, I, I, turn on and I, I see Josh Naylor in the big leagues and Edward Olivares and the Royals in the big leagues, Torrens and Ty France with the, with the uh, Mariners. And, you know, it, you can't help but to feel proud and feel good and feel happy for those kids. And hopefully, uh, you know, we have a little bit of fingerprint on them to, that, that help them develop to, 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 to be able to go be successful in the big leagues. And what do you feel like that, fingerprint is for the Padres right now obviously having one of the best farm systems in baseball even after all these trades speaks to how good the player development pipeline has been the last couple of years but what would you say is the Padres stamp on prospect development you know I I, I think we we stay with with uh we, we had a zoom managers meeting the other day and and I brought up the fact that I I think that the fact that we're unified um, across the board and in, in our player development system. And, and we have pretty specific player development plans for each of them. And every time a kid got promoted from a ball to double a, that's the first thing I would do is go to their, 
get on the computer, go to their player development plan. And we, and we tried to stay, you know, consistent with, with what we were, we were stressing and what we were teaching and what we we're trying to develop from each and every one of those players. And, and, uh, you know, it paid off. And, um, like I said, some of those guys that, that were traded have been around for four or five years. I think something that gets overlooked often and, and, and our player development, because we are there to develop players, but I think the fact that, that we're, we put a pretty good product on the field at every level and we're, we're able not only to develop them, but we, we teach them how to win. And um, I, I've always thought that was very important. As long as they, as long as they turn the scoreboard on every night, I think there's there's an objective. You have to trust the process, but but without an objective, it's it's kind of useless. And and uh, the fact that that these guys were able to get better and produce and win ball games all bodes well for the organization and for the player. Um, so when his time's come, when his time get, is there to go play in the big leagues, he, he has an understanding of what he's what he's there for. Yeah, and, and specifically when it comes to managing in, in the playoffs, how do you marry those concepts? Because a lot of what the minor leagues is, as you mentioned, there is player development, getting these players ready for the major leagues, forming out their tools. But when you come to the postseason, it's win every day. And I, I know that's the case during the regular season too, but that's to a heightened level of the playoffs. How do you – marry those as a coach as a manager and in your discussions with players going into must-win games like you guys had last year against Midland and Tulsa I, I I don't think you change much of anything um you keep riding the horse that got you there and and uh, you keep I, I don't think I managed the, the the playoff games any different than I did the regular season games and you, you're never going to forsake the development of a of a prospect to try to win a ball game you know uh, you know, there, there was at times some prospects, just like in the big leagues, uh, guys that may have been struggling. But you know what? You give them the opportunity. You don't pinch hit for them. You give them the opportunity. And, and uh, you know, the prime example is, is, is Taylor Trammell. Um, you know, he didn't – after we got him from the trade, he didn't have a great month and a half. But he showed up every day. He worked his tail off. Uh, he was a great teammate. And, uh, you know, he came up with no outs and the bases loaded and, and hit a – grand slam to give us the lead in, in uh in the game five of the championship series but he, you know i don't think you do anything much different you, you, again you trust the process with the objective in mind and and uh you know i think that grand slam someday we may may look back and that might be that might be the at bat that, that propelled taylor Trammell to great things and got him over the hump yeah and going back to that grand slam like you said you know you guys were uh, going into that inning down three, one, he hits it. You guys win eight to three. Uh, how long does it come or how long does it take to come down from a, a win like that? I mean, how, when, especially in that fashion, when you guys score seven runs in the ninth, it features a go ahead grand slam. It has all these dramatics almost straight out of a movie. Uh, how long did that feeling last for you in the weeks afterwards? You know what, when I, when I think about it, even today, I still get, you know, kind of excited. It was, uh, you know, as a manager, sometimes you look for the right things to say. And, and, and I remember them coming in off the field after the bottom of the eight and I was walking down the dugout to go out to coach third. And the only thing that came to mind to say to them is because they kind of had a blank look on their face. Cause you know, they're three outs away from their season ending after, after having a great run. And, and I remember telling them all, all I told them was just keep playing keep playing every at bat matters keep playing and then i thought you know what 
the, the reason I said that is because that's what I've been saying all year long. Mm-hmm. You know, whether we were up or down, hey, it all counts. Keep playing the game. And I, you know, I, 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 I guess I'm not smart enough to come up with any good meat, rock meat speeches, speeches before the ninth inning. But, you know, lo and behold, uh, uh, a couple of walks, a great a bunt uh, for a hit, and then the bases are loaded. And, and then Taylor does it, and, and we kept going. That's, that's what impressed me with him is that even though we, we took a two-run lead, we kept playing, another walk, another hit, and then Hudson Potts hits a three-run bomb. And, and uh, you know, I knew our bullpen was in, in pretty good shape, and and uh, Travis Radke came in and went one, two, three, and the celebration was on. But it was, it was you know what, it was a great feeling, and it was, it was like I said, it was almost fairy tale because, uh, I'll be honest, there were times – you know, during that game where things weren't going real good, we weren't swinging the bats good. We were down three to one. And, and, uh, I remember going out to coach third and the eighth thinking that, you know, I better come up with something to say to these kids if we lose, you know, because they, they, they put in a lot of effort and they played their rear ends off. And, and, and then all of a sudden I thought to myself, why are you thinking that? Why are you even thinking about that? Just, if it happens, if we end up losing, just speak from the heart and, and, uh, real appreciate that but you know i was kind of thinking about what i needed to say if we lost and and, uh, you know that's that to me was that little man on your shoulder talking nonsense and i i quickly uh aborted those thoughts and said hey we got it we still got six outs let's go and uh lo and behold you know they kept grinding out at bats and um you know we we preach three things in the pottery organization offensively on base percentage uh end zone contact and out of zone chase rate and, you know, those, all those things, you know, they came to fruition in the last inning. You know, we got guys on base. We didn't chase bad pitches. And when we got a pitch in the zone, we hit it good. And uh, it was kind of a culmination of a season-long, you know, teaching session or player development session. It was, uh, it was something that, uh, you know, a lot of the cliches you hear about as a kid growing up, you know, until you feel them like, like that inning right there, you, you, you often don't believe them, but, uh, I'm a firm believer now. It's a game's not over until that last out's made. Hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned Taylor Trammell in there and let's go through some of these individual prospects that have been traded. Um, you know, you mentioned a rough go of it from him last year after he got traded from the Reds, uh, in the middle of the season, he had 32 games with you guys during the regular season, had a 697. OPS. Obviously, a lot of people are still big fans of his, both for his work on the field and off the field. What impression did he make even when he was struggling? And what do you think led to some of those struggles for him down the stretch that he was able to correct in one at bat, one big at bat there in game five? You know, in, in all honesty, he, he he struggled when he first got there. And, and you know, I know he, he came over highly touted and he, he knew that. And I think he pressed a little, and I remember calling him in one one afternoon and, and talking to him again, saying, "Hey, just be yourself. Just go be yourself. You, you've hit before. You don't forget how to hit. Just go be yourself." And you know, I don't know that he made any any real adjustments per se mechanically or or anything during during the season. But the last two weeks of the season, the real Taylor Trammell started showing up, and. You know, he probably did most of his damage in the last two weeks, and then he had—he he was really good in the playoffs and in the ten games we played in the playoffs. And you know, I came back—he came back to to big league camp this year, and I did notice some mechanical adjustments. And 
I looked at some video of him from, from when he was an A-ball, and he looked more like that. He was more upright and working down and through the ball. And, and uh, you know, he swung the bat really good in, in big league camp. But, you know, I I can't help but to think that that, the, that that grand slam gave him some freedom in his mind and in his thoughts. And his, his, uh, you know, he, he went home after the season, and he went to work and cleaned some stuff up. And in spring training, I saw a different guy. And and the other guy you mentioned there who hit a home run, Hudson Potts, uh, now a member of the Boston Red Sox organization coming over in the Mitch Moreland trade. He spent pretty much all last year with you guys, 107 games, hit 16 homers, um, but was aggressively pushed, I would say. You know, he was there for his age 20 season. Uh, there were some reports that he struggled a little bit with velocity up and in, uh, but again, you know, had a big moment there the, at the final game. Uh, what did you see from him, especially being such a young player thrown into the deep water of double A and uh, what development did you see from, from Hudson Potts in 2019? Well, you know, he, 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 in 2018, he came up halfway through the season as a 19 year old. And, uh, you know, it's easy to say that, you know, if a guy struggles and he comes up early and he struggles, it's easy to say he was, he was, he was pushed, but, you know, I thought it was a great experience for him. He got his feet wet in 18 and then, you know, 19, there was some improvement in some regards. His defense was a lot better. He had a better idea. It, it, even though his at-bats may not have always been, been productive, there was that he had better at-bats. And, you know, I, I suspect if the Red Sox start him in double-A again as a 21-year-old, you, you, you'll start seeing the real Hudson Potts because he's got some tools that he can't teach. What, what would those tools be, would you say? One of them's power, uh, obviously. And, uh, you know, I think he does have – he has tremendous bat speed. I think the, the longer you'll play, you know, you said something about velocity up and in. You know, there's, I don't think I've ever written a report in 35 years that says guy really handles velocity up and in well. You know, I don't think – you know, I don't think there's many guys – I don't think there's big league guys, big league hitters that handle velocity up and in very well. And I think in due time he'll learn to lay off of that and uh, and and not swing at it and uh, – you know, because that was some of the things his his end zone contact rate wasn't wasn't where we wanted it to be, and he still chased a little too much. But I think as he he grows and matures and and uh, has more experience, he'll he'll quit swinging at some of those pitches and and narrow narrow his strike zone down, and and uh, you know the, the the real Hudson Potts will show up. But you know, it's like I said, it's easy to say you know that he was rushed, but. I don't remember too many people saying that Fernando Tatis was rushed to Double A when he was 19. You know, it's it's if you have a good if you have a good go at it, then you weren't rushed. You know, if you if you uh, if you uh, struggle a little bit, then people go, oh, he was rushed. But uh, I think when it's all said and done, we look back. I think those that year and a half of experience at a young age in Double A is going to pay dividends. And and moving on to somebody who was a little bit more age appropriate for you guys last year was Edward Olivares. 18 homers, 35 stolen bases, some really exciting offensive tools there. He gets moved to the Kansas City Royals this year. He had 13 games with the Padres uh, getting called up, and that now he's been in six games with the Royals. Uh, obviously put enough tools on, on the field to jump straight from double-A to the majors. Um, but what excited you most about Olivares, and what do you think he showed in that time with the sod pools to, think, to make both the Padres and Royals think he's ready for major league ball in 2020? You know, I, I think his tools are very obvious and, and I'll break those down in a minute, but I, I think just his, his baseball IQ and his instincts and understanding how to play the game and, 
and uh, that was impressive for me for his first year in double a and his ability to be consistent all year long was incredible and uh, you know there there were games where you'd look back after the game and, and you'd, you'd say how did edward Oliveras help us win tonight well some nights it was his defense he'd run a ball down in the gap some nights as as he'd throw to the right base and the next pitch would be a double play ball um some nights it was a st- he stole 35 bases. Some nights it was a big s- steal when we were tied in the eighth or something. He, you know, there was just he could beat you in in with his tools every every way possible. It wasn't just about his bat and it wasn't just about his power, but he could run. He could steal bases. He was a great base runner. He played a great right. He played right and center both. But he he did he did uh, you know his arm could beat you, and you know just just him him knowing where to throw the ball and him knowing where to position himself and reading hitters. I thought that was great. You know, he's like a lot of young kids that you get excited about. You might get him once on a pitch, but once he saw it once, you weren't going to get him again. And I thought that was a, a one of his best abilities he had at the plate was, you know, he, he, he might chase a bad slider, but if you throw that same slider to him again, he took it. And, um, you know, very mature for his age, but, you know, I, I really enjoyed watching him play because he had joy in his heart when he played. And, you know, it was it was uh, just to see him go from – from uh, I'll tell you how smart I am. I started him out in the seven hole. And, uh, <laughs> you know, just because he was young and it was his first year in double A and he wanted to get his feet wet. But after about two weeks in the seven hole, he went in the three hole and he stayed there the rest of the year. And uh, it was it was truly an honor and a pleasure to get to watch him play every day. And the last guy I want to touch on here that, that has been traded away, he's moved on, is Owen Miller, part of the massive Mike Clevenger deal between the Padres and, and the Indians. Um, played 130 games for you guys last year. Seemed like he was one of your most consistent performers uh, from beginning to end. Another guy kind of pushed aggressively. That was his first full season uh, coming out of Illinois State, but hit the ground running pretty well. Uh, I know you guys played at him at a couple different infield positions, but what stood out to you about Owen Miller and um, you know, what can Cleveland fans kind of expect out of him now that he's part of that organization? You know, he can hit, and, and that's the first thing that comes to mind. I've, I've never seen a guy – I wish I knew the number, but I, I don't know how many multi-hit games he had during the year. But, I mean, it was – it just seemed like every night he was destined to get two or three hits. And uh, he seemed like, you know, he was always right in the middle of stuff. And I can remember nights where we were behind and, and he was coming up fifth. and I'd tell our hitting coach, you know, we, we got to get to Owen Miller. If we can get to Owen Miller in this inning, we'll have a chance. And, uh, you know, that's just the kind of guy he was. And, and, um, you know, for his first full season in double a, you know, it was, uh, it was very impressive. You know, he's, he's got some, uh, he's got to work on his defense and, um, but, you know, again, for his first full year, he did okay defensively, but I think there's room to grow there defensively. And I'm not real sure whether, you know, he's going to end up at second or end up at short or third. I don't know. But I know if he keeps swinging the bat the way he's capable of swinging the bat, the Indians are going to find somewhere to play this kid. Hmm. And we've touched on a lot of guys individually here. But just go, to go back to the collective, um, when, there, uh, when there were so many eyes on this Amarillo team down the stretch and you have so many interesting prospects and now they're all, you know, kind of spread to the wind like this, how much do you feel like they leaned on each other and – and got different tool sets or different advice or, you know, picked each other up during the season and helped their individual uh, statuses or profiles 
because of how they did as a collective? Uh, you know, I, I think it was huge. I think, uh, I think, I, I think competition even amongst each other is a great thing. Um, and I think they pushed each other and, and, you know, I looked one time at the roster and we had guys representing nine different countries on that ball club. And, and I always found that to be, you know, especially what's going on today. I said, you know, this, this different cultures, different backgrounds, different religions, different countries, they come and they all get along. It was, it was amazing. You know, it might've been, uh, it might've been, you know, I had one clubhouse meeting all year, you know, and, and at times I felt like my job was just to, to make sure they showed up on, on time and make sure we had enough baseballs on the field, you know, for them to get their work in. And they were, it was a great collection of guys and, and, uh, you know, they helped each other, and, and we had Venezuelans, Dominicans, Cubans, Canadians, Americans, Colombians. We, 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 they, they just got along, and I think the one thing that they had a common goal, and I think they all knew they were close, and they all knew that, that, that they had a chance of playing in the big leagues, and they understood, um, you know, one of the things I preach, you know, from the get-go, just be a good teammate. Just be a good teammate. Pick each other up. You know, a guy makes an error. You got to make a pitch, pick him up. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times between innings I'd, I'd see Yvonne Castillo, if he made an error, you know, the pitcher would make a great pitch. And between innings, he'd go, hey, man, appreciate it, you know. And uh, that, that that's, in essence, that's their job. And, uh, you know, the, the, the pitching staff, the position players, the, the, the offense picked up. Uh, I mean, we had a rough inning pitching. They, they, they picked each other up. But, I think just the competition within the clubhouse is always good. And I think uh, they didn't back down from it. And, you know, Ivan Castillo led the league in hitting, but, you know, Eddie Olivares, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to let, uh, you know, he wasn't going to let Ivan get too far ahead of him. And, uh, you know, they just, they just pushed each other and, and in turn, they got better. All right, Phil, we'll, we'll leave you on this one. Uh, my colleague, Katie Wu did a story back in July um, that I, I don't want to spoil too much. I want people to go seek it out. But it was about how managing is kind of becoming a family business uh, for you and, and the way your son, Brett, uh, has been coaching the sod squad there in Amarillo as part of the Texas Collegiate League. Um, we normally have prospects on the show and, and players, um, but I wanted to get your perspective from this as well. You know, for minor league managers, for people trying to make it in that profession, minor league coaches, what kind of advice do you give them, starting with your son, Brett, here, and, and to others who are trying to make it in that way and trying to do so much of what we talked about here today, develop players, win on the field, and get these guys turned into major leaguers? Well, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I told my son. I said, you know, first and foremost, if you don't have a, a true, sincere passion for the game, you're wasting your time. Uh, because in the minor leagues, the, the monetary reward's not, it's not the answer. Uh, and, and I said, you, you've got to have a heart of a servant. And, and, uh, I said, Brett, I know you, you know, he's going to get married in November, but obviously don't have any kids yet. But I said, you just remember that every one of those kids that you're talking to, that's somebody's pride and joy. That's somebody's son. That's somebody's jewel. Don't ever forget that. And, and you treat them the same way. You know, my son was lucky enough to play four years and, and with the blue Jays. And I said, just remember, you know, that that's somebody's son and you treat them the same way that you, you would want to be treated. I said, that doesn't mean. You know, you, you can't discipline them. It doesn't mean you can't push them and doesn't mean you can't challenge them. But I said, 
you know, don't forget when they're struggling, um, we've all struggled in this game and you don't forget what that feels like and, and what you need. Sometimes you just need someone to talk to, but I said, you know, at, at, at to be real honest with you, at my level, at, at, and I think it's probably true in the big leagues and in, in Texas Collegiate League, you're, you're managing people more than the game because the guy across the dugout from you, he probably knows just as much about X and o, X's and O's as you do. And so the separator is, is how you, how you treat your players and, and uh, how you get them to bust their tail every day and come to work and put in a blue collar work day and make it fun, make it enthusiastic, make it a positive atmosphere. And, uh, you know, I think my son uh, picked up some stuff along the way, you know, just being in the dugout and playing pro ball. And um, he had a good run in, in the summer and managed a team with the best record and got named manager of the year. Good for him. And, mm. um, you know, hopefully that, uh, you know, hopefully that parlays into to a job because I know where his passion lies. And, you know, I, I've told him things are going to be a little different this year with all the changes. So it might be tough, you know, getting a managing job in the minor leagues, but, you know, stay with it and, and keep sending your resume out and keep calling people. And, um, some, someday somebody's going to give you a chance and, and then uh, be grateful for the chance and cherish the opportunity to go make the most of it. Definitely. Well, we look forward to hopefully seeing him in a dugout, uh, again, sometime soon, seeing you in a dugout sometime soon and potentially, um, you know, maybe even repeating in a weird way. Uh, Texas League title in, in 2021 when we get back on the field. But, Philip, thank you so much for joining us this week. This, is, this has been really great. And uh, all the best down there in Chattanooga. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It is hard to believe that uh, we would be talking about the final weekend of the regular season with uh, with Benjamin Hill and in an alternate universe. Maybe we're doing that somewhere. Ben uh, let off a story this week that said, quote, ready to have your mind blown? If the 2020 minor league baseball season had happened, it would have already happened, <laughs> meaning that the uh, final day of the regular season would have been this week on uh, Labor Day, which is insane. And we welcome Ben in for uh, this week's conversation. Hey, Ben. Hey, Tyler, and hey, Sam, and it is true that in an alternate reality, we were talking about um, things that happen in the world of minor league baseball over the season, concluding Labor Day weekend. Um, I believe I was on the road somewhere, perhaps Fredericksburg. Um, I'm getting a faint transmission of the alternate us in the conversation we're having, <laughs> and I'm trying to tune that out so I can focus on this dimension's conversation. It's kind of difficult, but yes, there was no season in 2020, but if there had been, it'd be over. I just can't make sense of things anymore. Well, it's a, a great story that is up on the site that uh, it's titled Hindsight 2020. Uh, and you look back on kind of what would have been in the 2020 season. I know we um, talked about that a lot this year, but also discussing a lot of things that did happen as uh, teams, you know, kind of tried to flex their creative muscle in the most challenging season in minor league memory, uh, whether it was doing streams of games on MLB The Show or opening ballparks up to fans for movies or fireworks or whatever it is. Take us through this rundown of kind of what did happen in a, a season in which there was no season. Yeah, exactly. The premise of this article is that there wasn't a season, but we still had a season and that minor league teams didn't completely shut down entirely. Um, or at least most of them didn't. They, you know, still tried to generate revenue, still tried to be uh, active in the community in some way, shape, or form. So this article is a roughly chronological run-through of um, the things we saw this year and the things that comprised the season as it was. So like you mentioned, um, you know, uh, MLB The Show uh, video, you know, streamed live via Twitch, and even some teams aired their MLB The Show games on, like, local television. 
uh, if you can remember back that far into April, I mean, Binghamton Rumble Ponies did that. Um, then talking about, you know, the emergence of masks as a new piece of uh, team merchandise that everyone was selling, uh, parking lot fire shows, uh, fire lot, <laughs> parking lot fireworks shows, there we go, uh, that the Omaha Storm Chasers did first, and then we started to see those around uh, minor league baseball. Uh, Daytona Tortugas did the first movie night, and then there were some teams that due to their state or county regulations uh, couldn't allow people onto the field, so there were some teams like Rocky Mountain Vibes who did uh, drive-in movie nights, if you recall that with you know, cars literally driving onto the outfield. Of course, a roundup of curbside concessions. Uh, then you know, special standout things like, of course, uh, Pensacola, Blue Wahoos becoming a uh, Airbnb at the ballpark, $1,500 a night uh, Airbnb rental at the ballpark. That, got, that went viral, that got a lot of uh, recognition and so on and so forth. The, uh, the uh, whole spate of uh, undefeated t-shirts once the season was officially canceled with teams declaring themselves undefeated. And then of course, uh, the more snarky iteration of those shirts where people, uh, where teams, you know, kind of uh, took a more skeptical view of 2020, like the Durham Bulls, uh, you know, this is bull shirt and uh, things of that nature. And those shirts continue to come out. Just uh, Visalia just earlier this week released a shirt, the Visalia Rawhide, this is 2020 and then straight cow and then a poop emoji. So, or a bull really. So straight bull poop kind of thing. Anyway, you can, you can think about it. And if you want to get a shirt that has a bull and a poop emoji made by a minor league baseball team, check out the Visalia Rawhide and so on and so forth. So teams, you know, kept doing things and keep doing things. And um, obviously there's not a hard and fast uh, line between the off season and the season as there is in most years. So a lot of things I wrote about in the story will continue in some way, shape or form uh, through the off season. And then everyone has his fingers crossed uh, for as normal as possible 2021. Although, It'll certainly be its own adventure for many reasons, 2021, but uh, uh, just looking forward to that and looking forward to uh, hopefully a full 140 game minor league baseball season. Yeah, and, and that's what I wanted to ask about too, Ben, is so much of this story is, is probably hopefully going to stay in 2020, those shirts you're talking about, the, the idea of uh, you know needing to sell uh, certain types of merchandise and certain types of food as takeout options, but do you feel like any of this could carry forward into the 2021 season? Not necessarily like fireworks shows in the parking lots, because hopefully we'll have fans in the stands next year, but what of these other things? Are we going to see like Airbnbs during road trips? What do you think about some of the ideas that came out of this year could carry forward to next year? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. There are some things we'll look, look back on, you know, in this article, in the 2020 season as a whole, that we'll look back on as very much products of 2020. But I think a lot of things is teams, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. But now that teams uh, through necessity invented these things, they might, you know, say like, oh, this is something we can incorporate in a, in a quote unquote normal season. And I think, you know, to that end, more, you know, movie nights on the field for sure. I think a lot of teams uh, were woken up to the fact a little bit that their food and beverage operation doesn't have to be just for 70 home games and events at the ballpark, that you could be in some cases a you know, delivery service or a place that fans could go just like a restaurant with regular hours, um, that kind of thing. You know, just uh, food and beverage is a revenue source uh, year round. Um, you know, food at the ballpark to go, I think is something that will, will last beyond that. Even maybe, you know, some cardboard cutouts, of, you know, teams that have, you know, big oversized ballparks, uh, find a way to get some cardboard cutouts in there. You know, maybe some Florida State League teams that play in spring training complexes. 
um, you know, once the Florida State League season starts, they could uh, put some cardboard cutouts in the far reaches of the stadium or that kind of thing. Who knows? I'm just riffing, but I do think a lot of the, wow, 2020's crazy stuff that we started to see uh, during this season, as it was, uh, will be things that carry on in 2021 um, as teams try to do everything they can to generate revenue and, uh, you know, squeeze as much as they can out of uh, uh, the fans' entertainment dollar. Ben, you are also working currently on a uh, a story in Kentucky. Well, you're not in Kentucky, but the story's in Kentucky about the Battle of the Bourbon Trail. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about Lansing Lugnuts Lemonade League, which is a two-team in-house uh, collegiate circuit that the um, that the uh, Lansing Lugnuts set up. Uh, similarly, and more ambitiously, uh, the Bourbon Trail, the Battle of the Bourbon Trail League is something that is still going on right now in Kentucky between, um, it's a partnership between the Lexington Legends, obviously a, a minor league baseball team, uh, Class A South Atlantic League, and the Florence Yall, uh, previously the Florence Freedom, who are an independent team in the Frontier League. So this is a really unique partnership and that these two Kentucky professional baseball entities both constructed two roster, two full teams of players. Lexington has two teams and Florence has two teams and some configuration of those four teams play every single day at both locations between Wednesday and Sunday, five games a week in each location, Florence and Lexington. And it's this really eclectic, sprawling mix of um, local players, you know, collegiate players, former collegiate players. Um, and as it's grown and word of mouth has grown around the players, um, you've gotten some uh, big names. You have some uh, former major leaguers, um, most uh, impressively, right now a member of the Battle of the Bourbon Trail version of the Lexington Legends is Brandon Phillips, who is tearing things up at the plate, uh, currently batting uh, 386, according to my notes, with a 426 on-base percentage. Um, he's had some walk-off home runs. His brother, I forget his brother's name, uh, manages one of the teams in the league. Um, other members uh, who are playing in Lexington right now, Robbie Ross Jr., uh, Ben Revere, uh, both guys who went to high school in Lexington, so they had connections, and, and now they're playing uh, in this uh, improvised four-team league. Uh, taking place between Florence and uh, Lexington. And so it's, again, uh, talking about 2020 and necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, this is a really unique one, uh, a partnership like this, and something that it, it does seem hard to imagine this existing outside of the context of 2020, but it's pretty cool. Four teams still in operation, and there's going to be a playoff series, I think, coming up next week. And Ben, before we let you go, we talked about this earlier in the show, Tyler and I, but um, we just wanted to get your reaction here with the news that Mill president and CEO Pat O'Connor is retiring uh, come December 31st. You've worked for the site for a long time. A lot of pretty much the entire time has been Pat O'Connor's tenure. Uh, just what was your reaction to that news that came down earlier this week? Well, you know, I think like a lot of things, um, it'll be easier to assess Pat O'Connor and his legacy once uh, the dust has settled. Um, Cause obviously right now his, um, you know, his retirement announcement comes at a time when, you know, minor league baseball future, there's a lot to be determined with uh, the number of teams and the specific relationship between major and minor league baseball. And, uh, you know, Pat O'Connor is right now very tied in with that. But I think as time passes, you know, I will say on a personal level, you know, I've crossed paths with Pat uh, many times through the years, you know, he's an active ballpark traveler in his own right. And, uh, you know, he was always uh, very friendly to me and supportive of what I did. And uh, he has had almost four decade career in minor league baseball, almost three decades in the St. Petersburg office. And, um, you know, you think about that, that kind of um, longevity uh, as a president and before that, uh, you know, high ranking executive uh, for minor league baseball, you know, he's overseen a lot of change in the industry. 
and a lot of growth and I think quite a lot of good. So it's tough to assess right now because there's so much that's um, unknown. But I think when we look at, you know, Pat O'Connor having been, uh, I think he was president since, uh, I want to say 2007. And again, in the league office, in the minor league baseball league office uh, long before that, uh, he's a lot of, had a lot of influence on the game in ways that, uh, you know, once the dust settles, I think we'll look back on and, and be able to assess that legacy further. But uh, no doubt he's a baseball lifer and put in a lot of time uh, to this game. Benjamin Hill, you can find on Twitter at Ben's Biz, and uh, the stuff is up on the site right now. And thanks, man. It's uh, weird to be talking the last week of the regular season, not have a last week of the regular season to talk about, but uh, obviously a lot coming up for us. And uh, we'll continue our conversations about the the business and where we're headed through the end of the month. Um, not our conversations through the end of the month. You know, those will continue long beyond that. But uh, a lot coming up the next few weeks, and we'll we'll discuss it all with you as it comes. Yeah, we'll do our best. Always good talking to you guys. And, yeah, happy end of the season that wasn't. I feel like, I don't know, we, we should have all gotten together on Zoom and had a, had a toast to the season. There's still time. Yeah, I guess. We can do that on the date of the uh, AAA National Championship. Game. I was yeah, just going to say that, Tyler. That's a good idea. <laughs> let's do it. And if you're listening, anyone who's listening to this podcast, AAA National Championship, uh, what could have been celebration. Um, details TBD. Or maybe they'll, they'll never be determined. But let's do something. Thanks, man. Thanks, Dave. Getting a chance to catch up with Josh Jackson on uh, our minor league writer spotlight this week. I feel like it's been forever since we've talked with Josh. Hi, Josh. Howdy. Howdy, everybody. How's it going? It's good to, good to talk to you, man. This is a, The story that we will discuss today is the first in a series, um, although I know we have been uh, kind of covering stories like this, obviously, for, for quite some time, but uh, now known as the Monsters of the Miners, presented by Uncle Ray's. And uh, this story today that you've got is about uh, a PCL star in the uh, 1920s and 30s. And uh, the, the name of the gentleman which you, who you write about is as good as the story itself, Smeed Jolly. And uh, he was a, a beast in the PCL. Tell us a little bit about Smeed Jolly. We'll dive into the story with you. He was indeed a beast in the PCL. and A monster of the miners, if you will. He, he was a monster <laughs> of the miners. And, you know, he's a character, you know, I think some baseball fans who have like a certain level of familiarity with, with, either baseball history or just like old timey baseball anecdotes will already know Smeed Jolly's name, but not, not as a person who won six batting titles in the minor leagues and two home run crowds and uh, crowns and once a triple crown in the, in the Pacific coast league, but as a sort of oafish and um, um, clown type figure in the major leagues, which is just really unfortunate that, that that's sort of the reputation he has. So um, hopefully with this story and this podcast segment right here, right now, we can sort of disabuse you of that being the, the um, primary image you have of Smeed Jolly, if you have one at all. And if you don't have one, I hope I didn't just implant that one first. <laughs> because let's focus again on the fact that he just raked absolutely um, basically everywhere. He Even in the majors, he, he was a very good hitter. He hit uh, 305 with 178 extra base hits and 473 major league games. So it's not like um, he was, you know, 
great. He, he, we're not talking about a guy who is, is somebody we would call like a 4A hitter today. This is a guy who just was one of the great hitters of his time. Um, and, you know, that's not me saying that. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, I never saw him hit. I'm, I'm talking about people like uh, Bobby Doerr and um, Luke Appling was, a, you know, was tremendously impressed by his hitting. These, these are people who saw him hit, played with him, and knew that this guy was just an absolute, um, you know, cracker jack in the, in the box. <laughs> To coin a, a term, if a I fitting, may. a fitting term for a, a player of his era. He he was an Arkansas-born slugger. He ends up in the in the PCL, and this is obviously a different time. We've discussed this uh, on the show in the past, but the Pacific Coast League in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and on was essentially a third major league. It was a uh, a much different era of baseball in which there were not direct affiliations in a lot of cases between major league teams and minor league teams or minor leagues uh, as such. So he ends up out there. And it kind of turns himself into this uh, Bunyan-esque character of, you know, winning a triple crown and hitting over 400 and all that. Um, what was his, as he started to gain that notoriety, um, I know the, the defensive, uh, I don't want to say prowess because it sounds like that was not necessarily a calling card, but that was something that stuck with him. Uh, how was he viewed by his contemporaries uh, around the, the game of baseball? Because like you said, when he got to the major leagues, there were a lot of guys who said, oh, no, he could really hit. He, it seems like he was just kind of one of those guys that fellow players recognized how special his talent was. Absolutely, and I think fans did too. I, Tyler, I remember slacking with you like a while back when I was starting this story, and I found, I found like some old message board um, from the earlier days of the, of the internet, and there was like a 96-year-old man. Oh, yeah. He was, you remember this guy, so he went out to, he remembered Sneed Jolly from going to San Francisco Seals games when he was a kid and, and, and just, he, he said, you know, this is the greatest hitter who's ever played baseball. Now, I'm not telling you that, you know, um, that that man is sort of <laughs> empirically right in that, <laughs> but, you know, that's the impression that he could make on players and yeah. fans for sure. Um, and, you know, you, you alluded to his size, and I guess I should, too, that he, uh, he was a very big man. He was, he was 6'3", which, you know, is a little taller than Roof. And, Roof and especially and at his, the time, the 1920s, 6'3", right. is like a seven-footer now. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, his weight was about – over his career, you know, it varied. I, I know how that goes. Um, my weight has varied tremendously over my career, but uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, reportedly up to like, I saw one newspaper from the, toward the end of his career list him at 240 pounds um, from about 210 when he, when he started. So he was a huge man. Um, and yeah, I'll tell us. Yeah. So the question you asked me was about how other players saw him. And you also mentioned, you know, the, the defensive, not lack of prowess. Um, I won't, I'm not trying to make the case here on the pod or in this story that he was a um, good defender. Although he certainly, you know, there are quotes I came across that are not in the, in the story that, um, and some that are, I think that, allude to his impression of himself as a fielder, which he thought he was probably about average, but it's that thing of, um, first of all, 
well, he felt like you could, at the time, there was like a binary kind of thinking uh, in fans. They thought of you as a good hitter or they thought of you as a good fielder. Um, and in most cases, he felt like, you know, if they thought of you as a great hitter, they thought of you as a terrible fielder. Um, in reality, he was probably pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> but it's also that thing of like, you know, if, if somebody, <laughs> if, you, if you know that your friend thinks you're a bad driver, then every time you like hesitate weird at a, at a stop sign or like <laughs> every time you do anything that's like <laughs> anything really, um, you can find something to, to sort of confirm that view of you, that label that they've stuck on you. I think that probably happened with him. He was definitely, you know, not maybe the fastest guy, not um, the most graceful. He, he did, there, there's an anecdote you know, that's the most famous one about him that is in the story. So I won't go into it too, too much, but there's one, a, a story that he um, allegedly made three errors on the same play one time as an outfielder, which, you know, that's hard to do. Uh, <laughs> it's, that's probably fictitious. There's another story that's not, that's not in the story on MILB.com that um, I think, I think I got, I think I heard, I, this one in Luke Appling's um, Hall of Fame, he gave he gave a um, oral history to the Hall of Fame and, and talked about uh, who he called Smeedy Boy. And his story about Smeedy Boy was that he, you know, they were with the White Sox and they came to Fenway and there used to be like um, a, I, he called it a bump, like a, a raised area in the um, somewhere near the monster not so close that it was like a warning track but out in left field there there was like a pitch that you'd have to climb and he tells the story of um of Smeed Jolly playing out there and before the game he's working and working and working to like master going back on the hill master charging up it master you know dealing with this this little raised piece of land every way he can um and then during the game he's he has to charge forward on it and he <laughs> goes charging forward and he you know falls right on his face and he comes into the dugout when the inning's over and he says they taught me how to go up that hump but they forgot to tell me how to come back down it um <laughs> so yeah you get the impression that certainly there was a degree of klutziness klutziness there that that was real it um, but like, you know, you look at his hitting and you think this is a guy who, first of all, if you were playing in, in a designated hitter era, um, he'd probably be in the major league baseball hall of fame, but he is in the Pacific coast league hall of fame for, for how good a hitting, he, how good a hitter he was for so long. He played, he had a 20 year professional career, a lot, a uh, big portion of that in the Pacific coast league. That's one of the amazing things about that era that guys could play 20 plus years in the minor leagues. That just doesn't, that's not a thing that's happened for a long, long time. Right. In some cases you could make, you know, about at, for, you know, for some players, we're not talking about like, you know, the roots of the, of the era, but uh, you might make more money in the Pacific coast league than you would from a major league team. It's, that's not, that's not the norm, but just the fact that it was possible that it could happen sort of tells you a lot about the era and, and sort of the idea of what the Pacific Coast League was. Again, we say this every time, but 
St. Louis was the farthest west that uh, Major League Baseball got in that in that at that time. Yeah, and and, and that kind of brings up something I wanted to ask about Josh, which was you know looking at his baseball reference page, this is a guy who drove in a hundred runs in the majors in both 1930 and 1932. He finished in the top 25 in AL MVP voting in 32 when he split the season between the Chicago White Sox and Boston Red Sox. Do you think it was just these issues of like these tall tales of his defense, like that act actually hurt him? I mean, at, at the time, obviously there wasn't TV there. Were, all you had were scouting reports. And if on the scouting report was that this is a guy who can't handle Hills or makes three errors in a game, that's going to hurt him. Or do you feel like the reason why he didn't last as long in the majors was because what you're saying in that it was in some ways just as good to, to go and dominate the PCL for decades. Um, why do you, you think know, his, his major league career was this short? You know, I think that he definitely felt like it was the reputation was, was hampering him. Um, and there were, you know, there was um, talk at the time that like, well, to make up for how bad of a defender he is, which, you know, there, again, I'm not saying there's no truth to, to that, to that, that idea that he was a terrible defender, but um, certainly however bad he was, <laughs> the reputation was, was much worse and much bigger. Um, I really think, you know, that probably was the main thing. I think if he, uh, you know, if, again, we're also like, it's not like he had an agent who was out there kind of shopping him around to every, to every team. Also, there were much, many fewer minor league, I mean, major league teams um, and many more minor league teams. But, um, you know, there was a, a view that, he would have had to hit even, you know, way better than he did to make up for his defensive um, deficiencies. He, they, you know, the White Sox tried him at catcher. They, they tried to convert him into catcher. I think even the Red Sox, like, stuck him back there sometimes. Um, and even that, I, <laughs> I think that the, um, the idea was kind of like, oh, we'll stick him back here and – how bad can it be? Like how, how much can he screw up just like not letting a ball go by him, especially considering that he's as a newspaper account at the time described him two sizes, two sizes bigger than city hall. Um, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I mean, he, he, he had a strong arm. That's for sure. He was, he led the American league in assists in, in, uh, in 1930. So I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit of a mystery. Um, but I think, yeah, yeah, it's probably a combination of both things that there were, there were legitimately good opportunities to, to play minor league baseball where, you know, he could be sort of um, the big deal that he was. Um, and that there was this idea around the majors that he wasn't really worth, he wasn't going to be a star. Right. And he could, he, um, so certainly nobody was going to like pay him like a star. I never, I didn't come across anything where, you know, a team was offering to sign him for blah, blah money. And he, and he turned it down and said, no, I'm going to the Pacific coast league. He didn't, he didn't leave the Red Sox of his own accord and, and return to the PCL of his own accord. That wasn't, um, his decision, but, um, Definitely there were reports and like, you know, his, 
his most incredible season in the PCL of many incredible seasons at PCL was um, 1928. And he, he was still with the Seals for 1929 because the asking price was so high on him. Um, so that was, that was a factor at that point. Um, but then after he, you know, after the White Sox bought him from the Seals in, in 1930 and, you know, major league teams saw what he was and how he could hit and, you know, the idea of him as a fielder kind of spread. Um, he didn't, he wasn't there a long time. He played four major league seasons. It is a great story that is up on the site at MILB.com right now. Uh, these stories from Josh are always worth the read. They're especially worth the read because of the quotes that uh, athletes were purported to have given to media members in the 1920s and 30s, and also just the way that sports writers uh, wrote back then because they are tremendously entertaining. So you should uh, go read the story for those and uh, because it's a great story. Josh Jackson, you can find uh, on Twitter at Josh Jackson MILB. And uh, thanks, buddy. Great, great start to this Monsters of the Miners presented by Uncle Ray's. Nice work. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. And, and thank you all for listening out there on Radio Land. Final segment on this week's episode of the show before the show. Before we go, Sam has this week's nationwide prospect fun fact. Yeah, so I, I know a lot of you have been following the Miami Marlins this year and their kind of surprising uh, run toward a potential playoff bid. Uh, it's been really exciting to watch Miami do that, relying a lot on young prospects. They brought up Jesus Sanchez at times this year. They recently brought up Jazz Chisholm. They've used Monte Harrison. Uh, but the best rookie they have, at least in terms of tools and, and even performance, I would say, is Sixto Sanchez. Uh, and one of the things that has made Sixto Sanchez's transition to the majors so good has been his elite fastball. Um, so I'm going to give a hat tip here to Joe Frazaro of MLB.com. He tweeted out something similar to this, and I updated the numbers a little bit. Uh, but there have been eight major league starters this year to hit at least 100 miles an hour on the radar gun. Um, that's not rounding up, so that's 100 miles an hour and above. Sixo Sanchez has done it 10 times this year. Only Jacob deGrom, who has done it 14 times, has done it more. Uh, so Sixo Sanchez coming right up, showing elite major league velocity right now, already throwing 10 pitches at 100 miles an hour or higher. Uh, what the interesting thing to me is beyond that, if we take this uh, fun fact to another level, uh, Sixo Sanchez actually has the highest percentage of 100 mile an hour pitches in Major League Baseball this year among starters. This is just among starters. Uh, he's hit triple digits on the gun 3.1% of the time. Doesn't sound like that much overall, but again, Jacob deGrom, who's done it 14 times, his percentage is 1.8. So Sixo's throwing it almost twice as often as deGrom. This is usually the type of velocity we think of with like an Araldis Chapman uh, or some of these really hard throwing uh, relievers in the lower levels. Um, but Sixo Sanchez already doing this is really promising, not only for him in his present uh, state, you know, somebody who only pitched at double A last year uh, has not yet reached the triple A level, but immediately got bumped to the majors. And if he can keep doing this over the next couple of weeks, he could be the ace of that Miami staff if they make a playoff run, uh, which would be really, really exciting. So who would have thought that a year ago, who would have thought of that two months ago uh, when it looked like the Marlins were, prepared to potentially punt even on a 60 game season, but they're very much contenders now. Sixo Sanchez becoming the ace of that club, really exciting. And again, it becomes, it comes down to that 80 grade fastball of his. 
He has been uh, really fun to watch, and uh, it's hard to believe that we're inside of three weeks until that playoff field is really uh, solved and settled. And, yeah, the Miami Marlins, who would have thought, but very much a contender in 2020. And that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. For Sam, I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.